0: Welcome to the Spot Check. Join your resident occupational and speech therapist, Amelia and Heather, as they dive in and get real with patients and clinicians about living with chronic disease. Welcome back to Spot Check. So this month, we have decided to take a little bit closer look at breast cancer and breast cancer awareness. We just want to have a conversation and get to know a little bit more about chronic disease, how it impacts people from different levels. Not only from you know we're therapists and how we treat it, but how it impacts those people. As we've talked last time, people are more than just a label. People are more than just a diagnosis. So we have
1: a guest today. Her name is Carissa. She's actually one of our there you go one of our colleagues. She's a physical therapist, and we will let her tell her
0: story. Welcome, Carissa.
2: Thank you so much. I'm excited. My story is only a year long <laughs> so far. My family and I moved to Houston, March of 2019, and everything was going super and amazing. And I'm loving my job. I'm loving new, our new life here. And just as a routine thing that I did was just to set up an appointment to get established with new doctors, all new doctors since we're new to, to the city. So I had an appointment set up for a well woman visit for just ob general To backtrack a teeny bit, I was having some, this is a little personal, but it's fine. I was having some <laughs> bleeding for six weeks in my daily life. I go to my appointment, everything's fine. I love my new doctor. She's like, do you want me to do a, a breast exam? I was like, I don't think so. I'm so young. I Whatever. So at first I said no. And then I was like, well, since I'm here, we might as well. And anyway, she found a little lump, on my breast, we both thought it's probably nothing. I was actually still breastfeeding.
0: Brissa, if you don't mind, how how old are you?
2: I am 39 now.
0: Okay, you are young.
2: Yes, so this was last year when I was 38. She went ahead and referred me for a mammogram and an ultrasound diagnostically. Uh, I know typically you don't get those until you're 40, so... I sat on it. I held on to my little referral slip for over a month because I thought, I don't have time for this. This is silly. So I finally went ahead and made the appointment. And the appointment took hours, actually, and had the mammogram, the ultrasound. And the radiologist was like, Well, I don't know. Again, it's probably nothing, but something on this ultrasound looks suspicious for possible issues. So let's get you set up for a biopsy. About three weeks later, I had my biopsy and that was a bit uncomfortable. (laughs) You know, getting tissue from your breast with a needle was uncomfortable. And then I was at work Friday seeing patients. The radiologist called me herself. Friday afternoon, it was like 2.30. I was actually still with the patient and she's like, well, you need to sit down for this. You know, and this is what it is. This is what we're finding. The cell's we're calling it a grade three, infiltrating ductal carcinoma. We don't think it's in your lymph nodes. But she told me just the basic, the initial diagnosis and said, we're going to get you set up to see the oncologist next week, that following week. That was a very stressful weekend. At the time I was seeing uh, one oncologist and he said, well, I think it's going to be a really simple ordeal. We're going to get you an MRI, some genetic testing, and likely we'll just have the lumpectomy and be done with it. Maybe we'll have uh, some chemo, but probably not. You'll be done after that.
1: So, Carissa, I'm just going to pause your story here for a second just to give us a more understanding of your story. You mentioned that you were breastfeeding your daughter at that time. Can you tell us a little bit more about your family and your work and your perspective coming into that weekend?
2: Yes, and I think that's super important. I actually have two daughters. I have a four and a half year old now, and she'll be five in December. And I have a two year old, she turned two in May. At the time, back last October, my two year old was 16 months or 17 months. So I was still weaning, almost done nursing, you know, so I didn't have a large milk supply. I figured that was part of the issue was people always have lumpy tissues when they're nursing. And especially when they're finishing up and weaning about my work. So I'm a pelvic floor therapist, pelvic floor physical therapy specialist. And my day-to-day life is seeing men and women with bladder, bowel, sexual dysfunction, pelvic pain, all sorts of women's health issues to include I I don't necessarily see people when they're diagnosed with breast cancer, but I see them after the fact when they're done with their treatment and they're having bladder, bowel, or sexual dysfunction. So when I sat for my pelvic floor boards, a lot of the questions were about breast cancer, chronic diseases, and autoimmune type disorders and things. So all of this truly is my wheelhouse. And I've always thought of myself as a very holistic practitioner and someone who thinks about the person as a whole and thinks about every aspect of their lifestyle. But I think because all of that is so important, what people eat, drink, their activity level, their stress levels, what's going on in their life, everything about their life. Going into this whole process with me, when I got the call that you actually have cancer, you know, first of all, the C word is like, the, one of the worst words you ever want to hear in your life for anybody in your family or yourself. Immediately, I'm a patient. When I'm talking to the doctor on the phone, you know, and then moving forward, it was just like sort of this whole blur of things. And suddenly, am I just a number? You know, what's going to happen? Your mind can race into many, many different avenues. <laughs> but it was interesting initially. I thought I knew a lot about cancer process and cancer in general. And then as soon as I got that phone call and talked to the radiologist for my future multitude of appointments, you know, my perception was completely different than reality.
1: Right. And I I think I heard that a lot from patients about Mm-hmm. when you got the c word i mean you know like mm-hmm. we don't even say cancer we say the c word because the word cancer has so much stigma and trauma associated with it so mm-hmm. that day that you were diagnosed everything feels like a blur and there's so mm-hmm. many appointments yes yes
2: so many appointments
1: <laughs> and so many education that you have to keep track of
2: mm-hmm.
1: you were saying last time that you go from they're saying that oh it's just gonna be an mri it's gonna be Simple lumpectomy, and we go from there. So, what was
2: next? Well, I had my MRI. I got the genetic testing, met with a genetic counselor. The MRI showed, just like the biopsy, essentially one tumor in my breast, and that was it. So, our treatment plan was based upon that. You have one tumor in your breast, nothing else in the lymph nodes, that type of thing. And it should be a fairly easy approach. At that time, it was called a stage one, grade three. The genetic counselor met with me and said, we're going to do all these tests. If your tests come back positive for, you know, you have a high probability of getting some sort of other cancer not related to breast cancer, will you handle that? You know, so there was suddenly like all of these life altering decisions that I had to kind of make on the fly. Well, I think I can handle it. If you tell me the news and I don't handle it, then I guess I can't. Did the genetic testing, met with the counselor my results were negative for everything. The The big trendy word is the BRCA gene, B-R-C-A gene. So I was negative for BRCA, for the two types of BRCA testing, which was really amazing, considering that decreases my risk of developing another breast cancer by a lot. And it also gives me peace of mind for my two daughters that I'm not going to pass on this gene to them. So in that respect, it was a really huge blessing and a a big burden lifted off from the beginning. And the initial, I guess, discussion and decision-making was, am I going to have a lumpectomy or mastectomies and reconstruction? The oncologist left it up to me and gave me the data and said, this is the data for survival and recurrence rates. For If you have this surgery versus this surgery, didn't really point me in one direction or the other because he wanted me to make the decision, but he gave me some surgeons to meet with. I met with two breast surgeons and three plastic surgeons. Over that two month span, I had so many people touching my breasts. It was just the funniest thing. I mean, toward the the last plastic surgeon appointment, I was just like, "Okay, this is no big deal. I'm I'm not modest anymore. Thank you very much." <laughs> I had I actually fast forward about another month. I had scheduled bilateral mastectomies with a breast surgeon and a plastic surgeon, um, and that was supposed to occur the day after Christmas, uh, because we wanted to get through the holidays and have the surgery. The breast surgeon I ended up selecting, she said, well, I want to first go in and take a look at the lymph nodes and just make sure that there's no lymph node involvement. Because if there is lymph node involvement, then we need to change our course of action. And I completely blew her off in terms of everything she told me, (laughs) except for the fact that, I knew I was going to have the surgery for the sentinel node biopsy to check the lymph nodes. So in my brain, no matter what was happening, I was still having the mastectomies and being done with it. I had my sentinel node biopsy on December 20th, I think, somewhere around before Christmas. As I was recovering from that 45-minute surgery, the breast surgeon called me. So I'm still loopy. She called me and she said, well... The preliminary findings show we're seeing some cancer in at least one of the lymph nodes. Nonchalantly, she said, okay, so we are going to now change our course. You're not going to have the mastectomies next week. You need to do chemo first. And I was so angry, you know, as a physical therapist and as somebody who is pretty type A and pretty likes to plan and have have a plan for everything. I was so angry because I had everything lined up. I had childcare lined up. I had everything lined up for family and for me to recover. And so now it was suddenly just a whole different procedure. So that was super angry and I uh, nodded her at the situation. After a few days, I decided to just trust her and trust the process. Although that was hard. Instead of doing the mastectomies, the day after Christmas, the port in for chemo. And I ended up having another surgery, but it was just a teeny tiny port insertion surgery. So that was like the first of many sort of really stressful decision-making events where you expect things to be a certain way and everything is planned and it's totally different. The outcome and the actual plan is 100% different than what you originally think. And I think it seems
1: like it's quite I've heard similar stories from a lot of patients. Mm -hmm. They go in thinking that it's going to be a certain way. When the lymph nodes was found with cancer, then everything just changes. And I think, I mean, it's important because when there is cancer in the lymph node, there is possibility of spread, and that's what they're trying to stop. So when you start the chemo, right, did you have any side effect from the chemo that you were feeling? And can you share a little bit more about that?
2: Chemo was really hard. I did have a lot of side effects, but... If I sort of compare myself to what I've heard from other people who've gone through chemo, I feel like I actually did pretty well overall, but I still had a ton of side effects. I mean, it was incredibly challenging. So I had six chemo infusions, right? And then after the infusion, I had a shot to, to boost the white blood cells. And then I had weekly blood work. I had no clue that this was going to be a thing and I hate needles and I hate all of that. So it's an interesting scenario with me, but I was able to use a little cooling cap that you put on your hair on your head during chemo. It freezes the hair follicle to prevent full hair loss, essentially. So I still lost like 50 or 60% of my hair, but I was able to keep a lot of it. So my children didn't really notice. And I didn't have to describe it to my patients all the time either, or like answer. Why do you, why are you bald? In terms of side effects, I had a ton of swelling. My whole body felt like jello. And I am somebody who I take care of myself. I eat healthy. I exercise type of thing. So to feel like jello and like my joints sort of hurt, you know, I, I felt like, I didn't have too much control over my body at all. You know, I felt very uh, annoyed with the swelling and from the steroids and things. I had some really random side effects, like the shot they give me to boost the blood cells, the white blood cells. My white blood cells, instead of being boosted, they they like exponentially grew. I mean, I had a very high white blood cell count, which that was giving me some bone pain. I, I felt like as if I had a newborn, I was calling the doctor all the time. Is this okay? Is this okay? It was a similar situation with every side effect I had. So I did struggle with bone pain, like in my hips and my knees from from the white blood cell shot. And I had another super random side effect I had was sinus infections. Like I had a lot of face pain. Like the first one was like a sinus infection and I took antibiotics. And then the next one, like after each chemo round, I had more and more face pain, like severe face pain that felt like I had a a really horrible sinus infection every time. So we got to where the doctor just let me take antibiotics almost the whole time so that I was on chemo because it was just incredibly painful. I mean, I had nausea. I had extreme pretty extreme fatigue. And I was told ahead of time by the oncologist, make sure that you continue to exercise to your ability. If you feel tired and you rest and you lie down the whole time, you're going to become really weak and you're not going to be able to recuperate fully as you would like to. So on days where I really felt horrible, my husband was really, you know, was and is really supportive. He's, he would say, you need to at least go walk around the block. Walk around the block, do a lap around the block. So, and that really did help. I really felt nice after I exercised, and it really helped my mental health and my general health. So, I tried to keep fit uh, throughout the whole chemo, and that was hard. It was different. You know, I couldn't run as much and do all the activities that I enjoyed doing.
1: Right, because, I mean, you're very type A <laughs> You're like, I just want to run. I want to do the thing mm-hmm. that I used to do. But I agree with you with the exercise piece. That is so important because, mm-hmm. I mean, that is the one thing that every research in every chronic disease has shown to be beneficial, especially in mm-hmm. cancer. I mean, I think the recommended dosage is five times at least 30 minutes of moderate exercise where you increase your heart rate has been shown mm-hmm. to reduce the risk of cancer coming back. Mm-hmm. I have a really good friend who actually passed away from breast cancer. And she told me like that on the day where she felt the worst, exercise is her medicine of choice. Mm-hmm. She had very limited choices when it comes to the kind of treatment that she had to have. Because she had, I think, stage 3 or stage 4 cancer that has spread to the, bo- the bone when they found it. So she has very limited options in terms of like what should be done but exercise was her comfort where she can, she know that if I exercise, I feel better. And that is my choice to make myself feel better. So that is really important.
2: Mm -hmm. So along the lines of that, after I got the positive lymph node involvement diagnosis, I was considered stage two as opposed to stage one. So my entire treatment, even after chemo, had to change with regard to exercise and wellness. uh, Yes, I did continue to exercise, but I also... Took the advice from the oncologist to to do acupuncture. The chemo regimen I was on really would create a tingling and numbness like peripheral neuropathy. So tingling and numbness in your hands and feet. As part of my treatment while I was in the infusion room, I had to put my hands and feet in ice the whole time. So I, it was funny, comical, because I had my hands and feet in ice and I had this frozen cap on my head that was literally uh, freezing and freezing. So I, it was a very cold scenario every time I went there. Different ways of torture, I guess. But it, in the end, it did help. And I'm thankful that I followed through with that. Because of my work as a physical therapist, I did not want to have long-lasting tingling and numbness. So the acupuncture was also meant to help me with that. And it really did. It helped with a lot of my side effects. And To this day, now that I've finished, I have finished the lumpectomy and I finished radiation. I still do acupuncture because it helps me with all the side effects that I now still have.
1: Right, and for the acupuncture, Mm. just because I'm, I'm also afraid of needles, and I've (laughs) never been to an acupuncturist before. Um, like, okay, where do they put their needles?
2: Well, with acupuncture being like an Eastern medicine approach. The premise is based on meridians in your body. I don't, I can't describe it as well as an acupuncturist could, but you know, they put a needle, for example, in, in your calf or in your ankle to affect your gallbladder or somewhere else in your body. So every time I've gone in, he puts needles in my scalp, in my head, in my ears, um, on my arms or on my right arm, on my legs, on my feet on my toes, uh, random places. And I don't know the reasoning behind each one, but I know there is a clinical reasoning. But uh, I, it, all I know is that there's probably about 20 needles and I get to hang out and rest for about 30 minutes and it's great. And I leave feeling so much
0: better with more energy. So that's awesome. That is awesome. How did you find your acupuncturist. I have a lot of patients for head and neck cancer who Mm. hear about acupuncture and I know there's great benefit to it, but they're always Mm -hmm. asking, how do they find one? How did you find yours?
2: The gentleman I end up going with, he was recommended by a patient of mine. So again, since I was new to Houston, new-ish, I didn't have a, and I still really don't have a huge network of people professionally to refer people to, but I called this gentleman that one of my patients recommended and asked him if he had experience with cancer and all sorts of things like that. And just, just had a good feeling about our phone conversation. I, I decided to use him. However, I know of a couple others that I've since met that have come to, that I've actually visited with on the phone. And, and so I think it's sort of a, you have to sort of seek it out on your own and, and kind of figure out how, what's, what's your comfort level and, and what type of person you're comfortable with and talk to them ahead of time. So.
0: Great tips. Thank you. Yeah.
2: And
1: I think word of mouth is really important.
2: Word of mouth. Yes. So much better for me. I like word of mouth more than a Yelp review or something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. With your side effects you are a healthcare professional. You've mm-hmm. worked with patients with the big C and you've, you know, they they tell you about their diagnoses, like what they're going through. And we listen to that. We we are aware of that. Mm-hmm. But when you get that diagnosis yourself, what was it like? Did, did anyone actually sit down with you and say, "Okay, these are all these appointments you're going to have to have." And this is how you're going to have to manage your schedule. And these are the side effects you're going to have. Did anyone actually sit down and tell you all these things and counsel you? Or did you just kind of have to learn it on the fly?
2: Mostly, I learned it on the fly. Mostly. When I did get diagnosed and I I actually switched to a different oncologist that I'm still with, through her, I was able to visit with a nurse navigator who... Provided me, uh, she handed me a, a booklet, like really thick, a really thick booklet of um, different resources and kind of community support groups and general things that I could take advantage of um, and I could potentially qualify for. She didn't, I think the assumption from her and from most people is that I already know what I'm getting into. You know, that's the way I felt. She was like, oh, honey, oh, here you go. And here's a pillow. And she was really amazing and sweet. But I think she probably assumed I already knew what I was getting into. She didn't sit down, nor did anybody and say, you know, this is what you're going to expect Mm -hmm. along the way.
0: Do you think they, they think you assume that because of your profession or just because everyone now knows about breast cancer?
2: I think both. I think my profession is helpful for me. I think I know a lot more and I know a lot more of the questions I need to be asking. And I know a whole lot more than someone who's not in the medical field at all, of course. But yes, I think people think breast cancer is so much more prevalent. People hear about it all the time. But I also think deep down, I think there's a little bit of protection. The doctors don't necessarily want to disclose or, you know, fill me in on everything because, when you're starting your journey, I mean, I, people would ask how I was doing. And I was like, I think I'm okay. I'm really overwhelmed though. You know, I think it's just a huge sense of being overwhelmed. And so I think had someone sat down with me at that time and told me, this is what you're going to expect. I don't think I would have been able to take it all in. I think it would have just created a heck of a lot more anxiety. So I don't know. I think it would have been helpful to say for someone to sit down with me and show me like an algorithm. If this happens, then this. If this happens, then this. And sort of, I think I personally could have processed things a little better that way, as opposed to every little change, every little modification of treatment, is it, it appears to be like a last minute thing. And oh gosh, we're changing course and oh gosh, now this and this. And I, I also think that the physicians, the specialists don't necessarily know either. I don't think that they have a big plan that they're able to disclose when they first meet somebody because there's so many
0: pieces of the puzzle. That's very wise. And I think you highlight a really, really important thing there that giving an algorithm Of like Mm -hmm. when things might change versus Mm -hmm. here is this fire hose of information being thrown at you. But then I think there's some people that want that. And so how do we differentiate and decide who gets what information, you Mm -hmm. know, and and I think there's some questionnaires out there for that readiness for change or readiness for information, but that's, yeah, gosh, that's very powerful. And I appreciate you sharing that because that's really powerful information, I think, and how to reflect upon that. And how do we parse that information out, like for Mm -hmm. myself personally? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and I think it's uh, you bring up two really good points. So one being that if everything was given to you all at the same time, it will be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Number two, I think if there's an algorithm on when things should change, not necessarily how it's going to change, but just kind of like giving you this little bit roadmap of like, okay, Carissa, if your um, lymph nodes end up being positive then we will have to change your treatment plan i think at the same time too like like you were saying earlier your emotional state at that point was very raw and very vulnerable like you were saying the word angry a couple of times just like not at the doctor or anybody else but at the situation because there were not so many you know like at, at that point you probably feel like you didn't have your voice anymore to choose anything so yeah Yes. No, I find that a lot too. Like, you know, like I offer prehabilitation services, and it's always almost like, okay, how much information do I give to this person? Right. Mm Because you don't want to overwhelm them.
2: So I think a lot of people, there's so many different, everybody's in a different stage of life and, and activity level and everything. There's so many important aspects of life that have to be considered when you first get the diagnosis and as you're going through things. Like, for example, me, When I switched to the new oncologist, you know, I met with her for the first time. We were about to start chemo. And this was two weeks before I start chemo. We have to decide, my husband and I have to decide, what are we doing for fertility? You know, she said, well, so here's your options. And she gave me three options. And she said, we can do this, this, or this, depending upon if you are dead set on having more kids. We weren't planning on figuring out our, our final, we weren't planning on making that decision for another year or two. That was a very stressful decision making, you know, that had to be made right away before I started chemo. Are we going to harvest? Are we going to do some uh, fertility treatments or not? I think that going back to your point about how much information can specialists really disclose and help us with at the beginning, I think I think with every person, it's sort of an evolution. And there's so many important life-changing decisions that have to be made that I don't think all of that can be presented to a patient in the first couple of visits, you know? So this whole process has been one big decision after another. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize, or I didn't realize before that patients went through this type of
0: thing. With you being a medical professional... So you have some like insider knowledge, right? When you started going through all of this and you, you know, you said you are a holistic practitioner, did all of that still apply to yourself or did you just have that moment of blank where everything just went out the window and you're like, I don't know anything. And where do I start?
2: I think there were moments of blankness, but nothing about my core Changed, you know, nothing about me really changed except for, yes, I think processing information was really challenging. My husband went with me to all of my appointments pre COVID. He would take away a lot more details than what I absorbed. That's really comical as a healthcare professional because I should be the one to pick up on everything and I should be the one to have all the good questions and so on. But yeah, there's a sense of blankness or there was until I sorted things out and had an initial plan.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair. I know I've talked about this uh, with many people where I've had many things happen where I just everything Mm -hmm. I know, I think I'm a pretty smart person, but everything (laughs) I know, I know nothing gone, completely gone. Mm -hmm. So it's good that you had that partner, that backup to be your Mm -hmm. additional brain for you. And I think that's super important Mm -hmm. to have somebody with you to either write down the notes, ask the questions, Mm -hmm. have that backup Yeah, Um, because inside those rooms, there's always a different, I I think there's always several different conversations and different memories of those conversations happening. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, and actually my very first oncology visit Uh, where I was discussing with the oncologist, you know, the initial very first consult, one of our family friends came with us. And so it was my husband and I and, and our friend. And she wrote notes down. She actually wrote down like the entire conversation of everything that was told to us. That way we both could process it and sort of reflect once we got home from that appointment. So that very first appointment was more of a blank. I didn't know what was happening, type of blank situation. So that was helpful.
1: Right. And I think it's kind of funny because we have we have PTOT and speech gathering here. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, like you would think, like, oh, my patient keep forgetting about this information that I'm giving her, like or giving him, right? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes as a healthcare professional, we forgot that when it's about our health. Like there's a moment of blinks that you were describing that you cannot Mm. capture all the information. And that's why written information is helpful. Mm -hmm. And I will repeat all the information that I give to my patient all the time, just because I know that it's not their intention to forget what I say. But sometimes it's just so overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. long and winded. And sometimes it's also traumatic to hear some of the things
0: that are being spoken about you and your life and your Mm -hmm. health. Yeah. Full disclosure. So I, I have lymphedema um, in my legs and it's a newer... I've had it probably for a long time, but it's a newer, more significant diagnosis that Amelia has been helping me with. And I know this and I know what I need to do to some level, but there's even that, that expectation that I know and I should know better and I should manage it better. But I know, but I don't know it on the deeper level that I probably should, but I still even... Like Amelia t- gets on me all the time about like, well, you know what to do with this. Mm-hmm. No, like I, I'm impatient on that side, and I and I don't know that level. And you know, there's there's that period of grace of we have, you know, we're, we're people, we're humans, and it it takes on a different level of, I don't mm-hmm. know, responsibility of. Of self ownership of that kind of stuff. And now we have to process on that other side for me, for speech therapy on the other side of that table for you guys on the other mm-hmm. side of the mat, maybe. I don't know, but, <laughs> um, but there's, a, I think there's definitely a difference. I really appreciate you sharing that perspective of what you've had to go through. You bring up an interesting thing with COVID. So, how have your appointments changed now in a post, well, during COVID world? What are those appointments like for <laughs> you now?
2: Well, during COVID, I was still doing chemotherapy. The first four chemo sessions, my husband was able to go with me. I was able to have a friend also stop by a couple times. And that was fun, fun, you know, for what it is. And so the last two sessions, I had to, you know, hang out there by myself. That was a bummer. So all my appointments since March, basically, have been more by myself. It's hard because, because of the reasons we've already talked about, it's nice to have somebody there for support. And as as another brain and, you know, set of ears. <laughs> yeah, the appointments have been interesting. I mean, since I'm a healthcare provider, I am just, it's a normal day-to-day thing now to get my temperature taken and fill out the screening form and wear all the personal protective equipment that we're supposed to wear. So that piece of it was... Not not a big deal just because I was already doing that anyway. So, uh, yeah, I just go to those by myself. Thankfully, though, I'm at a point where I'm not in that original phase of being so overwhelmed that I can I, I just come prepared to every appointment. I have my list of questions and I make sure to go through all of them
1: kind of switching gear a little bit here. Mm -hmm. So you've been, like you said, you have been through like your chemotherapy, your lumpectomy, your radiation, and now you're kind of quote unquote back to normal, right? But how is that new normal look like compared to your old normal? Like what kind of changes have you have to made on your lifestyle or if, is there any changes?
2: The new normal is different and, and definitely lots of changes. One of the big things is lymphedema. So I, you know, go to uh, occupational therapy for lymphedema once a week or every other week or something. And that appointment is no big deal, but I have to now use this pump on my arm for an hour. I try to do it every other day, but realistically it's twice a week. It's just a time sucker, you know? So uh, I have to plan and and look at everything I'm doing in life uh, accordingly. For example... I cannot go take my daughters in the stroller on a walk for an hour in the heat like I used to because if I am too hot, then I'll have a flare-up of lymphedema and general swelling. I still have systemic swelling that I don't always have, but if I get a lot of hot flashes or if I'm in the heat too long or if I don't sleep well, I'm really swollen and I get Lymphedema flare up. So, I essentially on a day to day basis have to sort of plan how I'm going to live life on that particular day to minimize negative impact on me. A big example of me sort of throwing that out the window was my family and I. We went to the beach with my in laws a few weeks ago, and that was fun. And I went into it knowing that we were going to be outside in the heat a lot. I was just gonna kind of test the waters and see what kind of side effects I I had from that. It was a few things. It was we were in the sun a lot. Uh, I didn't. I only wore my compression sleeve like once that weekend because it was hot. Uh, I think I got plenty of water, but I also lifted my two year old. I still carry her, of course. So I carried her just. 10 times more than I normally do and and held on to her more that weekend. So I came home and my muscles were really tense. My entire left side where where I've had the lymphedema, all my muscles felt tense. I had a lot of swelling and I just, it was a bit of a setback. I think every day it's just a matter of figuring out what my body can tolerate and what I'm able to manage and what's gonna affect me the least, you know, and that go that has to do with also what I eat and drink. I mean, I can maybe have a glass of wine, but not not as often as I used to, maybe once a week or something. And it I'll feel just really swollen from that. Same thing with foods. I if I have a salty meal, I mean forget it. I feel really I feel really sensitive to a lot of things, essentially.
1: Right. And you bring up a really good point again, like body awareness is something Mm -hmm. that is very important because back in a day, like 10, 15 years ago, lymphedema therapist has all these rules for the patients, the do not and the do's. Mm -hmm. I think since then we have kind of went away with it a little bit because research actually showed different things that those do's and don'ts are not necessarily absolutes for everybody. But I think mm-hmm. kind of what you're saying is that learning to know your body and how your body responds to things. Mm-hmm. Because I've heard lectures where people have said that, oh, salt does not affect your swelling. And I have heard from so many people that salt actually affects their swelling. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like You cannot take whatever is being said on the podium as a rule, but you have to test it on your body on small doses. Kind of mm-hmm. like you went to the beach and mm-hmm. see how it went. Yeah. And then now you know that, okay, I need to limit some of these things. And so that's something that is actually really challenging to do because people want a black and white answer. It's like, can right. I do this or not? Mm-hmm. And my answer to them is always, it depends because mm-hmm. some people can do it and some people can't. And Heather is laughing on the other side because she knows I told her all the time, it's like, it mm-hmm. depends. You know, like you just have to learn your body and learn to make decisions accordingly. And body awareness is something that I think in the Western medicine, world not something that is being really thought or something that's being really highlighted because what we're being thought I mean this is my soapbox right we're just given pain medication to numb everything mm-hmm. and you all know as much as I do that that is not always the best thing to do I mean there are times when pain medication is absolutely necessary but long-term pain medication actually numb our senses and our body is no longer able to tell us what it needs so I think you know you're learning to learn from your body is absolutely important for this journey
2: it's important but it's also not easy you know I love to be outdoors I'm a I'm a huge outdoors person so I've had to really figure out like I mentioned earlier what my body will allow me to do on any given day with with that and so it's a lot and people ask how I'm doing all the time and I'm like well I'm doing well but do you really want to hear all these details you know so I think, of course, people have excellent intentions, but sometimes it's hard. Like, do they really want to know how I'm feeling? <laughs> Going back to COVID, so with regard to appointments, yes, the appointments and and everything about appointments have changed, also to include telemedicine. So for my post-op appointments after my lumpectomies, I had uh, telemedicine appointments. So everything's a little different there, but from a COVID standpoint and social type activities as someone with cancer who loves to be doing things with friends and going out on dates and doing life you know i think that's been a really hard thing for obviously everybody in the world but even more so i think for anybody dealing with a chronic problem because having a compromised immune system is unfortunate <laughs> because i have to be just extra careful i mean basically i go to work and doctors appointments and then that's it. I haven't been able to venture out and do other things and really see friends and get together. So that's a huge part of, I guess, my journey over the past few months is I can't really get together with anybody. So that's a huge support system that because of COVID had to change. Like even two of my roommates from undergraduate school were planning to come visit and sit with me during one of my chemo treatments. And, of course, that was right at the time of everything closing. That was really sad. They couldn't come for obvious reasons, and and I understood, but it was sad because, you know, they wanted to, and and it was going to be really special.
0: Maybe we need to have a panel discussion one day about those of us who have autoimmune issues issues in the mm-hmm. day of COVID and knowing that we are more susceptible, we need to be more mm-hmm. careful. And those out there who think, well, survival of the fittest, you know, you take your risk. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I, I hear it a lot from different people, sometimes even our own patients that we kind of have to listen to. Mm-hmm. And that, that I, I'm just kind of just thinking that would be an interesting discussion to have one day about that mm-hmm. thinking and that mentality. Because I know many people that have had to listen to it and had to endure that that whole thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, that survival of the fittest, just stay home. Home, you know, watch out for yourself, but we're going to go out and do what we want to do. Yeah, just just sidebar on that one. Maybe, <laughs> maybe one day, Amelia. Yes, maybe one day. So, Carissa, you've shared a lot with us today, and we're so grateful for your insights. What do you feel like is your biggest change that you're going through right now, or that you're tackling?
2: That's a good question, and I think it's sort of multifaceted. I have multiple, I think, changes that I'm tackling uh, now that I'm done with all the really challenging treatments. So currently, as a young person, you know, in my 30s going through this, one of the biggest things that I'm tackling is now I have to take medicine for 10 years, of course, to prevent a recurrence from coming back. And so I know that that's not optional, and it's uh, incredibly important. But along with that, medicine comes with just a lot more side effects and I think all of the medicines pretty much have some intense side effects. So I'm dealing with that. And also the other part of my treatment is going to be having a surgery, a hysterectomy to take out the uterus and or take out my ovaries, the oophorectomy. So I'm going to have a surgery to remove at least the ovaries.
0: Oh, wow. What what made so, you come to this decision?
2: Uh, well, because of my age again, I was told I need to take this this one particular medicine, and I also need to take either another medicine that is even more hard on your body or take the ovaries out because because of my uh, menopausal status, I have to make sure that the ovaries don't produce estrogen since estrogen is what feeds the tumor in my body. So I chose the surgical route because I didn't want to deal with even more side effects from medicine for 10 years. That I still have not decided. I have met with multiple surgeons to, to talk through that. So that's one decision-making process to figure out what's best for my body and my future to prevent breast cancer uh, from, or prevent other cancers from coming on. And so I would say along the lines of th- that decision, my body is also in menopause. So something I didn't realize going into this was, you know, when you have chemotherapy, your body goes in menopause. I treat a ton of patients in menopause. And so I think, oh yeah, hot flashes, oh yeah, joint pain and swelling and everything and weight gain. And now, I mean, my biggest things are dealing with hot flashes, which are super intense and I mean, incredibly intense, a little bit of joint pain and swelling and the menopausal part of the pelvic floor. Thankfully, my bladder and all of that is good, but the vaginal tissues in any woman going through menopause change, and that is a huge change. So now I have to look at life from a sexual function standpoint a little bit different and take a lot more awareness. I take a lot more thought into keeping myself in my entire body healthy, and that really sucks as a as a young person to to have, you know, vaginal atrophy and and different things that come along with with menopause. And that in particular is my wheelhouse. I see patients all day long who have pelvic pain from menopause and have pain with sex from menopause. And so all the tissues changing, you know, and I help people through that every day. And so that in and of itself is extremely annoying and, and and coincidental that I'm going through that on my own, you know, now. So it's a little bit, it's a big deal as, as a young person and, you know, being married for almost seven years, you know, we have a long life ahead of us. And I think that's a huge uh, thing right this minute that now that I'm done with everything um, and the big, big side effects are behind me. Now it's these lingering pain weight gain. I've gained about five pounds, which is not a big deal in the scheme of life, but it's a big deal if I can't zip my jeans. And if, I'm, if I've am if i never had to do a lot to to maintain my weight, I mean, I always exercise and eat well, and I've never had to really work harder than that. So the, a lot of things are incredibly inconvenient, but at the end of the day, I mean, I have a really good life and I have a lot of blessings and lots of things that are positive and going for me and I think I'm in a really good place emotionally and physically but there are a lot of these little tiny things that add up to big things that I'm dealing with now you know I think the the ramifications of chemo are still in my body I mean that's I still have some side effects from that but I think one of the big things that I didn't realize at all prior to being diagnosed was It's such a lifelong ordeal. Now that I've finished this, you know, I can put a time frame to the chemo, time frame to the radiation, time frame to surgery and healing. Now it's just like this hodgepodge of symptoms and side effects and medicine and a little bit of fear and anxiety about okay, now every year I have to do this, this, and this, and make sure that I don't have a recurrence and I have to. I have to work through that. And I think there's a lot of the lifelong, you know, things that you don't, you, one wouldn't typically think about, you know, but this is going to be part of me forever, you know? So I think that sort of working through that in my own head is, is happening. So, and, and that affects how I, how my perspective on life and in every relationship I have and in every, uh, Conversation
1: I have with people. Yes, no, I, I think that's really really good summary. So, I guess my last question for you, mm-hmm. you know, like being that you're a healthcare professional and being that you also have had experienced the patient side, what do you think would be the most helpful? Like, or what have you find the most helpful in terms of navigating now that you know this is gonna be a lifestyle change?
2: Hmm, I sort of think. Something that would be the most helpful for me will be taking one day at a time from a lifestyle perspective and trying and allow myself to give up a little control with life in general and planning and everything and do the best I can with my health. I mean, all these things that I now have ahead of me are not so much anything I have control over. I think just making sure to keep up with all my doctor's visits and have a positive outlook and a positive attitude of which I feel like I have had this whole time. And that has made a huge difference in everything about me. So I think continuing that and looking for the blessings every day and the you know things that I'm grateful for, which is a huge number of things, I, I definitely know that. And uh, I think being a healthcare professional, continue to have the challenging conversations with doctors and continuing to be an advocate for my own health as a patient and and really keep up with that. That has been something I've really sought out or worked hard at being an advocate for myself and asking questions that probably, I guess, other people wouldn't necessarily ask who wouldn't, who are not in the health field. And that's where I have a, a... a benefit, I guess. Just keep up with that, educating myself without obsessing about it, but educating myself on the updated standards and research. And ultimately, I do see myself sort of helping others, like I do every day at work, but helping others in the sense of advocacy for breast cancer or any cancer.
1: Well, Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for just sharing all that. I mean, we just appreciate your vulnerability and just that whole process of navigating through just the cancer journey in itself.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Carissa, for joining us on the Spot Check and taking us through your journey. Please subscribe to the Spot Check from your provider of choice. Show notes and links can be found at the spotcheckpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Emilia is the lymph therapist and Heather is the medical SLP.